I want you to picture something. Young man finishes college, and not having anything lined up just yet, he moves back home with mom and dad. Few weeks pass, no opportunities, so he settles into the old routine of hanging out with the friends, staying up late, video games, sleeping till midday. Sound familiar? Some of you are like, wait, this is, is he talking about us right now? <laughs> no opportunities on the horizon and no real future plans. Three or four months pass when out of nowhere, a phone call comes from a really good family friend with an opportunity of a lifetime. It is the perfect job for this young man because it matches his mind and his skills and it connects with his heart and his passions. And he's done nothing at all, but it's just come as a sheer gift to have this job fall right in his lap. And he's gonna have to commute to the city and he's ready for that. His friends on the night before his job begins decide to take him out for a celebration and they get together for drinks at Winberry's, obviously. He has to be on the 633 uh, uh, from Summit into the city the next day. And he goes to bed too late. But then, on that first morning, he wakes up and it's 10.30 because he didn't put his alarm on. And he has slept through the greatest opportunity which has ever yet come into his life up until this point. And instead of being at work, he's sleeping. What the world needs is men and women who believe in Jesus Christ to wake up and get to work. What the world needs right now, and it really needs this, is people who trust that when Jesus said, if you believe in me and you follow me, you will do the works which you saw me do in the world and even greater works still. And I suspect that one of the reasons why the church has so little impact in our day, in our town, in our world, is that so many of us are sleeping through the greatest opportunity which has ever been given to us. And that is exactly what faith is. It is the invitation to accept the gracious offer of salvation in Christ, which does not call us to sit back and enjoy ourselves until we die, but rather to go to the very best work that anyone could ever have, the work of helping to transform the world through God's power in a way that fits just how you have been made. The invitation to bring you into God's work in the world has been given. And this morning, what I want to do is to sound an alarm so we wake up, so we don't sleep through that great opportunity. And I'm not going to do it myself. I'm going to enlist the help of two of Jesus' followers who knew him well and were close to him, who in their own way, who in their own way sounded the alarm to wake people up who were otherwise inclined to be asleep. The first is Peter, uh, who if you were here last week, we, we looked at his words together. We'll begin with him. The second is another close companion of Jesus. His name is James. Uh, we'll look at him too. But we'll start with Peter, and this will be review if you were here last week, but if you're here for the first time, this will be new. In Peter's 
second letter, he wrote to a group of Christians who were always walking on the line between faith, which was just something they thought about, and on the other hand, faith, which made a real difference in their own lives and in the world around them. And Peter wrote to them, encouraging them to find the path on which they would discover faith which was effective and fruitful. The path on which they would find themselves living a vital faith which changed them and the world around them. And wanting to see men and women live their faith in a way that changed the world, Peter addressed this issue directly when he taught them how to find the path that would keep them from having a faith that meant nothing. Uh, let's look together now at one of the passages we looked at last week, and this will orient us this morning. In verse 5 of the second letter which Peter wrote in the first chapter, he wrote these words. For this very reason, he addressed this group, you must make every effort to support your faith with goodness. And then he went on from there to list six other virtues which support faith and keep it from being meaningless in the world. But this morning, what we're going to do is narrow in on that first virtue, which Peter offers as a support for faith to prevent it from becoming ineffective and unfruitful. It is the single word, goodness. When Peter considers all those who will hear his words, he knows that what they need is to be at work to be at work pursuing the virtues which support faith, and the very first one he lists is goodness. Now, it's not hard to know what Peter means by goodness if you pay attention to the way he uses the words goodness prior. Right before writing that we must support our faith with goodness, he describes the gift which we have all been given, the gift which gives us everything we need for life and godliness, which comes to us from Jesus through his Goodness. When Peter uses this first word, virtue, this first virtue, goodness, to describe what we must work at, he has something specific in mind. He is imagining Jesus' goodness, the way that Jesus was good in the world. If you want to see your faith make a difference, the first thing you must do is work at being good in the world as Jesus was good in the world. If you know anything at all about Jesus, it will not be hard for you to imagine some of the ways in which he was good. Uh, some of us here have been following Jesus for many years and we know a lot about him. Others will not know very much. Maybe this is one of the few times we've been in a church. All of us will know something about the way that Jesus was good. Uh, try this for a moment. Imagine, if you would, what it would be like if more of us made every effort at being good in the world like Jesus was good in the world. Think of that. You don't have to know much about him to know that that would make a difference. And, and this is a second thing I'll add, and, and I'm gonna be challenging here this morning. You also don't need to know all that much about the church to know how uncommon it is for those people like us who gather Sunday after Sunday to do very little that looks like Jesus in the world. Does that sting too much? What? It's, it's pretty strong. And I, I include myself in this. We're pretty good at avoiding the bad things that we know we're not supposed to do. But anyone who spent a lot of time 
around people who, like us, come each week and want to grow will know also that the way that Jesus was good in the world often looks very different than the way we conduct ourselves in the world. And put aside the reasons why. The truth is, in the church, in the group of people who come together week after week, it is surprisingly and even sadly uncommon for people to make every effort to look like Jesus looked in the world. And the person who knows this best is the person who spends lots of time around Jesus and also lots of time around people in the church. And here's where the other follower of Jesus will help us, the man named James. Now, some of you will know about James that he spent a lot of time around Jesus because he was Jesus, help me here, brother. Imagine that. Imagine you get to see Jesus when your kid's hanging out with your friends and he there is your brother and you get to observe the way he conducts himself around his friends. You get to watch how he responds to the chores that he's responsible for doing at home, which neither of you want to do. You get to see the way your brother Jesus treats the people in town who are nice, but also the ones who are not nice. You get to see the way he responds to people who are kind to him, but also who are cruel to him. And James was someone who followed Jesus enough because he was his brother to see Jesus in all of these varied settings. Uh, not just that, but when Jesus started to teach and started to form a community around him and build up followers, when Jesus went all the way into the city of Jerusalem and got himself into trouble with the religious authorities, when Jesus was there on the cross, when Jesus died, at every step of the way, James was there. So here's a man who knows Jesus really well. And he's also a man who knows people in the church really well. Here, Maybe this is news to some of you, but do you know that sometimes in churches, people can be really petty and mean? Do you know that? Not in our church. We're perfect, but in other ones, right? Thank God we're not like other churches. <laughs> I hope you catch the irony in that. Every community of people who get together to try to follow Jesus will constantly find themselves walking in directions that are very different from the ones that Jesus wants people to walk in. And James knew this well because as soon as the church first formed in Jerusalem, after Jesus rose, when many of the other apostles were going out into the wide world under the power of the Spirit to teach and spread the gospel, James stayed put in Jerusalem and became the de facto leader of that first church in Jerusalem, which means he was there as that church started to grow and he got to see with his own eyes how people who are trying to follow Jesus treat each other in community. It means that James got to see how the church worked out how to use the resources it had to help other people. How would it do that? He got to help guide them through doctrinal issues. What should we do with people who have been far away and now have come close? How do we handle it theologically? James got to work with the elders. He got to work with a growing church. He got to spend day in and day out with people who, like you and like me, find themselves trying to figure out how do we live our faith in real life. And so James is a very good guide because he knows Jesus and he knows us. And here's a third thing before we get to James' teaching. He also knows that the world is a mess and what it needs is people whose faith actually makes a difference. And you know that too, don't you? Yes, before we read James, think for a moment of the mess in the world that most deeply touches you. 
where you want to see it change. And for some of you, this will be big and global. And for some of you, it will be an atrocity. It will be an injustice or an oppressed people group. It will be a need that is dramatic. And for others, it will be right here at home and close by, very, very close. But you think of it. What the world needs is men and women who wake up and who are ready to get to work, who are ready for their faith, listen, to be good in the way that Jesus was good. And here's how James addresses this. And he does this in a strong way. This is like an alarm. In the second chapter of his book, he addresses faith, which is meant to be doing something in the world. He addresses it first with two questions. And I want to read those questions and dwell on them. This is in James chapter 2, verse 14. Here's what he writes. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but do not have works? Can faith save you? If we take just that second question by itself, can faith save you? And if we've read the rest of the New Testament, then we know that we are bound to answer in the affirmative. We must say, yes, faith can save you. Because if we're familiar with Jesus, for instance, we'll know that more than once he told someone, your faith has saved you. And we'll know that in his lessons, in his teachings, in his parables, more than once he casts faith and belief as the key ingredients to salvation. And if we know not only Jesus, but also his followers, then we will have read in Paul's writings and in many others as well, this very simple theme that people are saved by faith and not by, help me here, works. Many of you will have memorized passages where Paul himself says, as he does in Galatians, we know that no one is justified by works of the law. That's not how it goes. He will say in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we are saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no one may boast. Over and over again, the answer to this first question, can faith save you? In the New Testament is yes, of course it can. But here, when we listen to James in his own terms, both in the Greek syntax, which is hard to see in English, and more importantly, in the context of what he says, he actually anticipates a negative answer to his question. That is when he wrote this in verse 14, can faith save you? He expected the proper answer to be no, it cannot. And not, listen now, stay with me, not because he was contradicting Jesus or Paul, but because of what he had in mind when he used the word faith, which is different than, in, and, than the ways it was used uh, in Jesus' mouth and in Paul's. And the clue to it is to keep this second question close to the first. And I want you to look at the first question again. Paul, or, excuse me, James is envisioning Someone who, look at what it says, if you say you have faith, but do not have works. In his mind is a person for whom faith is just something they say, rather than something which completely has captured them, which owns them inside and out, and so which changes them altogether. He is envisioning someone who only says they have faith, but doesn't do anything that matches it. Now, let me ask you, have you ever seen someone like that? 
Have you ever seen someone who, who just talks a great big talk, but their life does not match with what they say about what they believe? Have you seen someone like that? I bet very few of you are seeing yourself right now. And I also bet most of you are imagining a person who says they have faith, but then does lots of bad things. And the reason I imagine that is the, the environment that we're in as American Christians has taught us that the most important thing for the person who says they have faith is to make sure they don't do a short list of really bad things which Christians aren't supposed to do. And we are, in fact, obsessed with it so that we feel proud of ourselves when we can put other people in the category of bad Christians because they do those bad things. And that is a separate thing from what James has in mind here. What you must see, and I want you to pay attention here, is that James is not envisioning someone who says they have faith and yet does bad things. Do you see what he's envisioning? He's envisioning someone who says they have faith but does no good things. And that's a lot harder to see. We don't pay attention to that. We don't pay attention to the fact that there are many, many people who say they have faith in Jesus, but then do nothing good in the world that you would expect someone who believes in Jesus to do in the world. And I don't mean the version of Jesus that we've got in our imagination where he's just out to make sure you don't do these few bad things. But I mean the version that you see when you look at Jesus and how Jesus was good in the world. Here, James is telling us that if you have faith in him, then you should expect that you also will be doing good things in the world. What kinds of good things? Let's be concrete. He's imagining someone who says they believe in Jesus, and when you do, then you would imagine that person would be someone who, this is so simple, but it's so absent in our day, who extends kindness, not just to people who are kind back, to people who are mean back too. Think of that for a minute. Someone who follows Jesus, and who is often unkind, especially to adversaries. How do we as Christians respond to adversaries? Is it in such a way that we could say in good conscience it supports our faith with goodness? How about hospitality? How often is there someone who says, yes, I believe in Jesus, but they only reserve their hospitality for a few people in their lives, and those people are the ones who can pay them back? When on the other hand, there's endless opportunities to be hospitable to strangers, to people in your neighborhood, to people who you work with, and how often do our lives lack hospitality entirely? Here's another one, generosity. How many people say, yes, Jesus is my Lord, I have faith in him, and yet there's no generosity in their lives. And I'll be very concrete. They give so little of what they have away to others. And I mean even money. There are studies of how, what percentage uh, those people who in the United States identify themselves as evangelical Christians, how little of their money they give away. And we live in an environment where we have so much. And this question must be raised, and it's a question which James raises here about kindness, hospitality, generosity, forgiveness, graciousness, all of these very simple virtues that you'd expect someone who is good like Jesus was good. The question which must be raised is the one here that James raises, which is, what good is it if your faith is just something that you say? Are we still friends? <laughs> Whew, some of you look angry. What good is it? Well, the answer is it's no good. Here, James goes on 
to be very concrete and show a picture of what he has in his mind when he pictures someone who says they have faith but doesn't have works in such a way that it's not good. In verse 15, if a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? And the answer is, there is no good in that at all. And James knows it. And I want you to understand, when he pictures this scenario, he has in mind something which is real. It's not imaginary. In the city where James was a part of a church, the fact is there were people who were there who did not have enough food. They didn't have their basic needs met. They didn't have enough clothing to keep warm. And as a result, they were anxious and they had very little peace in their lives. And they sometimes came along and crossed paths with the very people in that community who said, yes, we have faith, we believe in Jesus. And now James is envisioning what often happens even as they overlap, which is nothing beyond words. And the simple question of what is the good of that deserves an answer. There is no good in that. Because what the world needed then was men and, women's who, men and women whose faith resulted not just in what they said, but in doing something which changed the bad things that were all around them. And now, leave aside Jerusalem and all those many years back and come to today in 2017 where we find ourselves. And now I want you to understand that just as there were things in the world back then which were wrong, not just in James's eyes, but in God's eyes, so too today, right now, there are things which are wrong. And they are wrong, not just because we don't like them, but because God himself does not like them. There are plenty of things all around us which are contrary to the good and gracious will of God our Father. And one of them is exactly what James just described, that there are lots of people who don't have enough. And I mean very specifically, don't have enough for food and clothing. That is wrong. God does not like that. And there are many other things beside that are wrong in the world right now. There are young people who have no purpose right now and are wandering aimless. And that image that I started out with, not having anything to do after college, is, is almost at an epidemic proportion. At greater percentages than at any time in our history as a country, people between the ages of 18 and 34 are still living at home and don't have anything to do. And that's not right. That should change. There are, there are thousands around us who are so hopelessly addicted to all kinds of substances that they can't get themselves out of the ruts that they've dug. And the reason is they're utterly depressed. And if not for those ways of medicating themselves, they would be on the brink of doom and disaster in their hearts. And that is not right. Loneliness is an epidemic among us. And that's just to name some of the problems right here. You spread that out and in the world around, I don't need to tell you how many issues there are, but what you need to understand with clarity is that when God himself looks at these phenomenon, God himself wants to see a change come about. And that this theme in James's writing, that, that theme that says, we must ask what is the good of it if faith doesn't do anything beyond words does not come out of James's imagination. It doesn't only come out of his closeness to Jesus. It actually comes out of the tradition of God's people for generations back. Listen, this may be a surprise, but I want you to listen. One of the most consistent themes in the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew writings, is the prophets coming up against the people of God 
for not being good in the world that God wants, in, in a way that matched the way God wanted them to be good in the world. Some people think the Hebrew scriptures are just a bunch of, um, you know, back padding for the people of Israel, thinking they're so great compared to everyone else. No, the prophets looking at the people of God, and you can see this in the first chapter of Isaiah, you can see it in the fifth chapter of Amos, you can see it in many places in the book of Jeremiah. The prophets looking at the people of God say, look, on the one hand, you talk a really good talk. But on the other hand, the fact that you don't do anything good for the oppressed and those who are suffering from injustice in the world, it makes God despise all of the good religious things you're doing. And their language is quite strong in many places. God looks at the worship services that the people of God has. And in Amos, he says, you're singing and you're worshiping your celebration. It's even better than the Renaissance church band. I thought that was funny. But then God says, I don't want to hear any more of your songs. The people of God were experts at giving their offerings at the temple, the, 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 the blood of bulls and goats, burning incense, all of their religious festivals, they kept them carefully. But when God looked at them, he said, your religion is just something which you say with your mouth. All the while, there are oppressed and disenfranchised and rejected people who you've pushed away. And what I want from you is for you to see all of the good things that I myself are waiting, am waiting for you to do in the world. That is, the prophets looked at the people of God and saw men and women who were sleeping through the greatest opportunity that had ever come their way. Instead of getting busy and getting to work. And listen now, when James looked at the people who gathered in his community who he knew really well as he knew Jesus really well. He saw, again, men and women who had been invited by his brother to do even greater things than he did in the world, but they were asleep. And they were asleep because their faith had become something that they just said rather than something they did. And so when he envisions this and asks, what good is it? He goes on in verse 17 to say something that is very strong. Look at it. So, faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Please understand, James is not trying to teach them about faith first and foremost and, and how it figures into salvation. What he's doing emphatically is trying to show them what true faith is. True faith does save us. And true faith is accepting the gifts that God gives in his grace along with the invitation to get to work, to wake up and start being good in the world in the way that Jesus was good. And this is exactly why when Peter instructs those who've gathered in his community and teaches them how to have a faith that is not ineffective and unfruitful, the very first thing he says is, you must make every effort at supporting your faith with goodness. And that now is the invitation which is meant to wake us up so that we ourselves don't find uh, ourselves down the road in a place where our faith makes no difference in the world, where our faith is without works, where our faith is in, fact, in effect dead, but on the other hand, so that our faith does in the world what it was meant to do. And the path to that is simple. Here it is. It is, again, to look at Jesus and to see the way he was good in the world and then to get up and get busy being good in the world in the way that he was. And that will support our faith. Let's come back to Jesus for a moment. Imagine him. And let's think about how he was good in a way that we ourselves are free to imitate and work at 
to make every effort at being good as he was good. Let's start simple, okay? Here's something about Jesus. Jesus was a good friend. Now think of this. He spent time and gave time to his friends. Uh, He cared about them. He let their problems matter to him. Uh, He laughed with them and celebrated with them. When it was appropriate, he cried with them. He prayed for them. Jesus was a good friend. Someone here might think faith is about an awful lot more than being good friends. And of course, you are right about that. But do you know that faith is not about less than being good friends? Uh, Someone else might think, yeah, the problems in the world are so utterly big. What can friendship do? I'll tell you what, that very small first step at being good as Jesus was good can make an unestimable difference in the world if only we ourselves as followers of Jesus would be good as Jesus was good. And that means making every effort to support our faith by being good friends. Would you think first of that? Let's start with manageable steps. Support your faith with, which, with be, uh, by being good friends. Think of a friend and do something good for that friend today and you will be on the path of being good as Jesus was good. Let's keep going. Jesus was generous. Jesus gave his time and his energy to others. He gave his attention to people who were demanding. He gave his wisdom and he gave his resources. In fact, he gave his whole life to others. And now If you want to see your faith make a difference in the world, make every effort at supporting your faith with goodness which is intentionally generous. It is so easy for you to do that. You could do it today. Uh, You could choose to give at church. That's one thing. You could choose when you're around your family or friends this afternoon at the barbecue to go sit with a lonely person who's by themselves and give them your attention. You could let another person's problems matter to you and be generous with your heart in that way. Make every effort at supporting your faith means be a friend like Jesus was. Be generous. How about this one? Be gracious as Jesus was gracious. Does anyone else notice that there is a decreasing store of grace in the world around us these days. Anyone notice that? Yes, if you have not noticed that, here, when you're leaving, when you come to a red light stop, but when it turns green, don't start yet and see how long it takes for the person behind you to beep at you. (laughs) And then see how long it takes for them to give you a rude hand gesture. I mean, the, the, the lack of grace and kindness and simple manners today, it's unbelievable. And so be gracious like Jesus was gracious. Say hello to the person who's clearing your table after your meal. Ask them how they are. Be kind to the teller. Be be good to the people who help all around you. Be gracious like Jesus is gracious and you will be making every effort to support your faith with goodness. It would be a good exercise for all of us to read through the gospels and to look at Jesus and see how he was good and then, listen, get to work supporting our faith by being good. Jesus stood up for what was right even when it got him in trouble. Jesus went toward people who were in need, even when it inconvenienced him. Jesus was humble, even when he had every reason to be arrogant because he was always right. Jesus was gentle, he was good, he was meek, he was kind. Every one of us has every opportunity to see our faith make a difference in the world as we begin to support our faith with goodness in the way that Jesus was good. And all it will take is for us to set the alarm, to get up and go to work. And that's it. 
If you had to summarize what the preacher said today, you could say, he told us, get up and get to work. Now, that doesn't sound like a very gracious message, does it? And I know every time someone stands up and says, you must get to work in a church, we're always in the danger, as I said last week, if you were not here, you can watch that sermon online. As I said last week, of hearing this message with religious ears rather than gospel ears. Just to review, religious ears are ears that say, I must do good so that God accepts me. And I want you to understand, nothing could be further from how it works with Jesus than that. And so if you hear that this morning, you're not hearing what I'm saying. What you must hear is with the ears of the gospel, which says, because God is just that good, he loved me even when I was his enemy, and he gave himself for me in Christ, rescuing this sinner purely by grace, and because God has been that good, now I am ready and free to get to work in the world in a way that makes a difference, in a way that's good for the world. Having accepted his grace and love and mercy in Jesus, which is unfathomably great, how could anyone do anything other than turn to the world around and say, how can I now pass on this goodness with joy and gladness? The gospel hears it as, you have been accepted. Now it is time for you to get to work. You have been given the opportunity of a lifetime and now you are invited by God in Christ to get busy doing good in the world. And here, one last thing to protect us from hearing this with the wrong ears is the little card that you were given when you came in. Okay, go ahead and grab it if you've got one. On one side, it sums it up very simply by saying what the world needs is goodness. Goodness in the way that Jesus was good. In the small ways that I've mentioned, and in the earth transformative ways that we can't even imagine yet how God will use us when we follow him. On the other side is a very beautiful and profound expression of the truth that the way it works with God is that first he saves us and then he calls us to be good. I'm gonna read it for you and you can see it up here and then hold on to this. Paul wrote to Titus, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, justified by his grace. That's clear enough, isn't it? That you are saved because God is gracious. Through and through, that's the way it works, because he loves you. And then Paul goes on to insist, I desire that you insist on these things. That's Paul's way of saying, sound the alarm. So that those who have come to believe in God, that's us, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. That is the simple call for us this morning. Devote yourself to good works. Do it today. Do it before you leave today and then all throughout the day. These things are excellent and profitable to everyone. I'm telling you what will happen as we grow in this way. What will happen is God will use us to be the change that the world needs as we see the virtues which support faith growing among us. Now listen, I want to be very practical. If I'm sitting where you are now, I'm beginning to wonder, how do I really understand what the good is which God has called me to do? Because the truth is, there are many voices out there that are going to tell us, this thing is good. No, that thing is good. And even there's an awful lot of confusion among religious people. And so what we're going to do is continue to follow Peter's guidance as we gather next week. And I want you to notice here, look at the virtue which supports our goodness, which will be our focus next week. You must make every effort to support your goodness with knowledge. And so next week, I'll stand and challenge us to make every effort to grow in our knowledge so we know the good that God has called us to. 
I'm happy to be on this adventure with all of you here. And I'm going to ask now that God would help us grow as he means us to. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the unexpected invitation that has come from you in Jesus for each one of us to have our dream job. That is, that we could live in the world free from anxiety about making ourselves right with you because we are free to trust that you've already accepted us in Jesus. And then we are free to be about the very best things in the world, the kind of world-transforming work which Jesus himself was about. I thank you that you've invited us to be about that too. God, this morning I pray that you would chase away any regret for failures or mistakes in the past, that once again you'd set each one of us on the path of walking toward the goodness that you've called us to be about, and that this very day we would be free to dedicate ourselves to the good works which you have saved us to do. God, I pray that individually we would do that, and I pray that all together Renaissance Church would become a community that thrives as we do good as Jesus was good in the world. Save us from dead faith, which is only in our words, and deliver us into an active faith which will bless the world, which is in such desperate need of your blessing. We pray for this in the name of Jesus, who loved us in the world and gave himself for us in this world. Amen.